0: They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding ling ling city desk. Pull the press, pull the press, extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspeggermen meets such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press.
1: Media Project, an opportunity for us to talk about the interesting issues in the news media of the week, and we welcome you to join us as we have some veteran journalists with some conversation about what's going on locally and nationally. I'm Rex Smith, along with Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armeo, and Alan Shartok this week, and we're happy to have some conversation with you. So, Alan, we'll start with you, please, if we could. YouTube has pushed back against anti vaxxers. It has banned some prominent anti vaccine activists, blocking all anti vaccine content that is not just coronavirus vaccine, but among the others, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course. What do you think about this? There are some who say that, no, social media ought to be open to all. What do you think?
2: Well, let me ask you this in reaction to that very provocative and good question, Rex, as always. My question to you would be, did the people at the private company, the Times Union of Albany, New York, have the right to say, we don't want something or someone or something in the paper? Didn't you have that right? Absolutely so. So if it was a public utility or something like that, well, why not? You know, then you could have an argument about that. But it seems to me YouTube has the right to do that and to take the consequences. Now, if they did something that I really liked that they took it off, I might not feel so good about it. But on the other hand, I would still recognize that it's their right. Rosemary, what do you think?
3: I think that it's not effective to just take them off. I am inclined to say, yeah, good, about time. I was happy when they took Trump off, too. But in fact, when they silence people like that, it kind of increases the view that all of the media. Media is biased and that certain views cannot be expressed so while i empathize with it and i certainly understand especially in this case misinformation about vaccines leaks to death there certainly is good motivation for it it's not effective to simply remove the people i think it would be better to run what they say but with caveats and if you're reading this you also need to read this this is a disputed view i think there's probably a better way to do it judy you have any different thoughts on that
4: yeah, there's got to be a better way. I mean, certainly, uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all those social media companies have the right to try to moderate their reforms, but there's so much out there. It's almost too little too late. What YouTube is doing now is taking off anti-vaccine in general before they had taken off anti-COVID vaccine information, but they have plenty of exceptions personally of it. You know, the average Josephine says she wants to, you know, give her anecdote about how, you know, her cousin was made sterile by some vaccine. She's still allowed to do that. And you know what, My Facebook is feeding me tons of information, these kind of memes that are anti-science, anti- vaccine. It is more than just videos. You know, there are billions of these videos out there and it's, you know, a small step, but it's a tiny little step towards resolving this problem. I agree with Rosemary. We need to more aggressively fight back against this bad information.
2: World War II comes along. I think about World War II. I'm the only one on the panel who was alive during World War II. Nevertheless, you know, if the government wanted to draft people, they drafted people. They said, you don't get a choice. We, we are the ones who are going to make that choice for you. Now, my sense of this is that it would be appropriate for the country to say to anti-vaxxers who are going to kill so many people because of their attitude, no, we get to say that you are so threatening to the civilization that we're in that you're not allowed to be on our air or in our place.
3: I think it's interesting that you're equating government action with YouTube. That's yes. how powerful the tech has become. They're not government at all. It's a private enterprise. So again, of course, their right to do this is not in question. It's whether it's the right thing to do to silence people. And you know, certain people I would like to see silenced. I'm personally in favor of it. But my point and Judy's, again, is that's not the way to conduct a debate and an ongoing discussion. I also like your point, Judy, that this has gone beyond opposition to COVID vaccines. This has now become opposition to any kind of vaccine, smallpox and polio and measles. And it is becoming extremely dangerous. It is a public health crisis. But tech is new. This high tech stuff, social media is all new. How do you rein in misinformation spreading like wildfire on those media? Should the government be regulating it?
1: Here's what is making the difference here, and and this is actually what Alan alluded to at the beginning. These platforms made their billions of dollars and got their hundreds of millions of adherents by making themselves available to everyone, by in effect making themselves into a power greater than in the individual government. So that's how they've now established themselves without any responsibility for the content. They always argued they were not content providers, they were just platforms. They've made this bed, and now... Now they're trying to sleep in it differently uh, you know we who have been working in I would call it the responsible press for our lives have always had the responsibility of making judgments about what's appropriate and what's not as Alan mentioned at the beginning this has been part of what we do Facebook and YouTube and Twitter did not they allowed anything into print, and so now that they're beginning to behave responsibly, as many of us have asked them to for decades, actually, uh, for 15 years, and now they are beginning to hire people to actually moderate. They're beginning to take seriously the responsibility that a mass media ought to take. And it's going to blow up their business model if they really do it appropriately. If they really do take down material that is not true or that is objectionable, people are going to turn to other platforms, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, Rosemary. But I think that's going to be okay. I think that's what's going to have to happen Mm -hmm. because you can't just have private entities running rampant with information that is flatly untrue,
3: right? A very good point. It also is ironic that they're now finally acting as we have asked them to, as you say, and yet there's never been more calls for government regulation. And that makes me worried, even though I think they are a little out of more than a little out of control. If you read The Wall Street Journal, the government stepping in doesn't seem like it would provide a solution.
4: I would argue they're doing too little too late. You know, they use these algorithms to serve you up content And from my own personal experience, I know they continue to serve me up anti-vax, anti-science information. It's not outright anti-vax, but it's anti-science, and it's all over the place. Those algorithms are designed to inflame your opinions and further engage with the social media website. I think they're doing a little bit, but I think there's a lot more they should be doing.
2: And, you know, we have discussed many times on this program... The idea of giving, quote, both sides of the story. So you have something as immediate as populations dying. We know it because they don't get the shot. And, you know, on the other hand, every time you turn on the TV or anything else, you're finding they talk to the people who say, we have to do this. And then they find some schmageggy who is going to say, I don't think we should do it for any kind of crazy reason. And they give them almost equal time.
1: Hey, we've got a letter from a listener who actually makes that same point. Listen to this. Micah wrote to us, and by the way, we do welcome uh, your comments, folks, media at wamc.org. Micah says, I find media project participants, that's us folks, repeated defenses of the traditional news media's hard work and credibility frustrating. Long ago, members of the news media should have gone on the offensive Turning the tables on bad faith opponents, the news media on an ongoing basis should be demanding of these other entities and reporting to the public what primary sources these other entities are using for their reports, where their data originates, and so forth. Further along this line of identifying information sources, when interviewing persons on the street, reporters shouldn't simply be asking opinions. They should ask the next question: Where did the person get the information? For instance, if someone says they can't support a plan, uh, the reporter shouldn't leave it at that. What does this person? Need, how do they get their information? Reveal sources of misinformation and so on. Reporters should report this as well. So any thoughts about this listener's comments here?
4: Great letter. But will the reader, will the listener, will the viewer have the um, attention span to get through that content and absorb it? I think it's a wonderful thing. I'm, You know, these man-on-the-street interviews that we all tend to do, you know, in retrospect, I think they weren't adding to the public discussion. You know, the idea of going to the local diner and talking to whoever's hanging out in the diner, the train station, the bus stop. They give you this anecdotal view of reality, and I'm not sure it adds to the public's understanding of what's happening.
1: By the way, in my defense, I never assigned such a story as an editor. I hate man-on-the-street interviews. So,
2: (laughs) Why, hi. (laughs) Helen, what were you about to say? I was about to say exactly the same thing. You could come up with the wrong guy. And and it's just uh, really off their game. And it does tend to change the results of reality by having one person who may be, you know, off the wall.
1: I got broken of the habit by a fine editor named Tony Merrow, who was my editor at Newsday, a great investigative reporter, became the editor of the newspaper, who put out a ban on reporters interviewing taxi drivers. Yes. And this, I learned the problem of this when I arrived in San Francisco in the late 80s to cover the draft Cuomo movement when Mario Cuomo was thought to be a likely presidential candidate. And so I was coming in from the airport in a taxi, and I said to the taxi driver, So I'm here following Governor Cuomo of New York and wondered what you thought. He said, Yeah. I, I hear she's a tough lady. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I thought the end of that story, Rex, was going to be who?
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, he had an opinion, but it wasn't informed. Anyway. I
2: mean, we've got half the country who voted for Trump. Talk about not informed.
1: Yeah. Alan, have you heard all the talk about Stephanie Grisham's book, the former White House press secretary, the one who during her nine months as a press secretary, she did not hold a single White House press conference. And now she's out with a book with this great ironic title. I'll take your questions now. Cute. Talking about Trump's terrifying temper. What do you think about Stephanie Grisham telling all?
2: You know what? You're sitting there. You've got a manuscript or you want to sell a book. And the publisher says, what do you got? <laughs> You say, I got, he's a nice guy, and he was always nice to me and my family at Christmas time and at the parties. That won't sell that book. So one always suspects that when somebody worked both for the wife and the husband in this case, which he did, the result may well be that you're colored by the need for dollars.
3: Imagine.
4: It was definitely
3: by greed that she wrote the book. but um, And I don't want to buy it because I don't want to reward her. But it's not just how nice he was. It's filled with gossip and meanness. And I want to read all of it. At least I want somebody else to read it and tell me about it.
2: (laughs) I I think you may have misheard me, Rosemary. I couldn't agree with you more.
3: (laughs) But, you know, doesn't it make you think this is the same thing we've said about all the people writing the tell-all stories. They took notes on this. They saw it, they realized what was going on, and they were quiet and supportive of him for years, for years while it was going on. And then they come out later. That's really very despicable.
4: Right. And we yes, talked it, about how the title of the book is ironic because she didn't have any press briefings when she was press secretary. She maintains that she didn't do that because she didn't want to be in the position of lying But then why take the job? She resigned the day after the Capitol riot. I think that was, again, too little, too late. And let's hope that the book includes – I mean, there's some fascinating gossip that we've already heard about. The book comes out the first week in October. Let's hope that it's a little bit more – I mean, she was there for a long time. I hope I get more than gossip out of it. I hope that she illuminates what was happening in that Trump administration more than, again, what we're getting are little pieces of gossip on each of these books. And I'm not really sure – I really want a historian to take a hard look at this Trump presidency and give me something I can really dig into.
1: You know, she stayed in the White House for all but the last two weeks of the presidency. She was there for the entire tenure except for that, as you noted. And then uh, she said casual dishonesty filtered through the White House as though it was in the air conditioning system. Unfortunately, of course, that isn't what people who are great adherents, people don't really pay attention to that which conflicts with their own biases. So we're not likely to see that that has much of an impact, that kind of truth-telling has, in fact, much of an impact, sad to say. So folks, if you have points of view, you'd like to share media at wamc.org is the way that you can do that. So let's talk about political writing. There was an interesting little editorial in the Columbia Journalism Review called The Kill List, what we want to discard from political journalism. We've all done political journalism. Alan, in fact, has a PhD in political science. So he's looked at it from different sides. So, here are some of the things that the editors of CJR talk about, and which we ought to. The first thing they want to kill, what they want to discard from political journalism is platforming disinformation in the name of balance. It makes the point, Mm, uh, for example, of Meet the Press hosting Senator Johnson of Wisconsin, who is a notorious liar. How do you avoid platforming disinformation when a whole political movement is based upon such dishonesty? Any ideas there?
2: Well, obviously, you have to have both sides in these situations on, Rex. And we do know, for example, that Donald Trump is a lying, 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 lying liar. That he tells whoppers all the time and then accuses other people of doing what he did. For example, rigging, rigging elections. They're going to rig, but he's the rigger. And we know it. So what else can you do? I mean, we got Rosemary here, who has covered the beats for years. And as an editor also, we have you And and of course, we have Judy. And what do you do? Not cover the other side because you think that they're lying or because you think they're not up to it or you think they're out of balance?
3: Yeah. Increasingly, I am thinking that is the only solution. I have done this for years, as we all have. But this is a new thing. Trump is holding rallies right now. Thousands of people are going to them. And he says in them, I... Won the election in Arizona, and the forensic audit proves it. And of course, it was not a forensic audit. It was a hoax. And it didn't prove it. It still showed that he lost. And so it's an outright lie, and it's being projected to millions of people. The, the congressional hearings held this week with Matt Gantz just screaming at General Milley, speaking untruths in front of everything. It's as if there's no shame, as if there's no compulsion to speak the truth anymore. And media should not be covering falsehood. It should be saying he held a rally and he said untrue things. And that's the coverage I am seeing. But there are some networks, Fox Happily is not one of them, but OAN is one that's running the rallies in full, full of lies and misinformation. I think this is a new phenomena that we're seeing because the technology spreads the untruth so quickly and so widespread that it's hard for legitimate media to counter it. It's exhausting
1: as well. On my Facebook stream, one of my old high school friends posted that he had just come back from a nice trip across the country, ate in cafeterias, had a good time, nobody was wearing masks, and he thinks that all of this coverage of the coronavirus is media hype caused by the corporate media. And at a certain level, I'm just exhausted from trying to push back about it. At a certain level, you decide, what can you do? You can't fight all of The misinformation that's out there. And I don't want to be unable to contend with it, but when, frankly, the Republican Party these days has become enamored of lies and is basing its campaigns on the Trump big lie, it's really hard. When that is one stream of one of the two major streams of American politics, when your commitment is to truth-telling, you find it very difficult to figure out how to actually cover that stuff without falling into the trap.
2: Well, that's right. I was struck, as we speak today, by a very good article in The New York Times, which talked about a bunch of Republicans, including Alphonse D'Amato and some other conservatives, who were gathered in a room—now, this is really good reporting, I think— Uh, who were gathered in a room to support the governor who has taken over, Kathy Hochul, so that the conservatives in that room were meeting with some of the most right-wing Republican people that we know in New York State. And the Times did a great job in basically crashing the meeting and telling everybody that these were the people, so that I think, you know, it becomes very important to have good reporting as an antidote to some of the lies. I don't know what else you can do.
1: Absolutely. Here's another kill list. What we want to discard from political journalism, according to the editors of Columbia Journalism Review, combative questions engineered to be TV moments. Now, the question is this. Sometimes when you're in a, a uh, an interview situation or in a press conference, is it OK to ask a provocative question to elicit an interesting comment? Or is that bad form? Is that journalistically, ethically inappropriate? What what do you think about such combative questions? Judy, you want to take a crack at that one?
4: Yeah, you know, I think when you watch network news or or cable news, I think both sides are guilty. Politicians often never answer the question asked, and that frustrates the reporters, but the reporters are also trying to get a moment. I agree. Sometimes they ask misleading questions. You know, when did you stop beating your wife kind of questions? But again, I think reporters are frustrated because politicians don't answer the questions that were asked. They say what they want to say, and often it has nothing to do with the actual question. I think they're trying to ask often provocative questions, but they're trying to nail someone down about whether or not they have the votes for the infrastructure bill, for example, um, because they're getting evasive and misleading answers. That may be why they're asking those kinds of questions.
3: I would hate to see a ban on any kind of questions because provocative is in the eye of the person being questioned. If you will remember, Donald Trump got incensed by really very common questions about why did you do this but it was asked by a woman or especially a woman of color he took offense at it anything that jim acosta asked was regarded as provocative just because it was him asking the question so i don't like that and certainly he has the right to say you're just trying to, you know, to increase the temperature here. That's not helpful. That would be a good response. Biden has answered angrily to some questions and then come back and apologize for it later. But I don't think there should be any rule about questions. And actually, every once in a while, I like a provoking question.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm so yeah. surprised. <laughs> no, but Rosemary, you, <laughs> you, you, you are a great provocateur, and uh, it adds to everything. I mean, I think— if you, have a, if you have a have you know, a hum a hum humma sort of discussion and, or press conference, it doesn't help anybody unless you really try to go for it.
3: I've worked okay. in too many countries overseas where such respect for authority leads to wimpy questions like, I'm sorry to ask, or would you mind answering, sir? And you don't get at the real information that people need or want. That, that
2: raises a very interesting thing. My very good friend uh, who was in his mid-80s has passed. His name is Simon Epstein. Uh, he was a wonderful psychiatrist who lived in central Connecticut. And, But in any case, he would listen to me interview Governor Cuomo. And he said at one point, don't ever call him sir. That's outrageous. It's right. Yeah. That, that's outrageous. But he's
4: your servant. <laughs>
2: yeah. Right. Uh, so, so we have to be very careful about how nice we are, how subservient we are, as Rosemary just put it. Right. Well, right. how
1: nice we are. What about obituaries? One of the things that Columbia Journalism Review editors uh, say: let's get rid of the hagiographic hey, obituaries, like calling Donald Rumsfeld controversial. Uh, they quote George Packer in the Atlantic, who got it right, supposedly. Quote, Rumsfeld was the worst secretary of defense in American history. Being <laughs> yeah. newly dead shouldn't spare him this distinction. Now, there's an obituary.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, but we, we are really nice to people on their way out. And there is a sort of an ethic, and I've, I've been accused of violating that ethic, of giving somebody a boot in the behind on their way out. You're not supposed to do that, I've, I've been told. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. you're onto something there, Rex. Do we do um, too much when it comes to protecting the dead or the past?
3: I, I totally applauded that little item. I think George W. Bush and Gerald Ford were great examples. These are are presidents who did highly controversial, if not um, could I call them terrible things when they were president, and it all seemed to be forgotten. They turned it to saints after they died i, I, I mm. accuse my mother of this all the time since my father died he turned into a saint and she's <laughs> forgotten all the time he was yeah saint guy you know he's not he didn't do anything miserable or crabby he was he was just a saint and we do that with our politicians and i don't see how that's service to the truth or to the country
4: yeah and we get this at the local level all the time too if you write a news obit about someone who was Convicted of a crime, and you mentioned that they were convicted of a crime. The letters will pour in, and and how you, how dare you say bad things about the dead? Uh, so it starts at the local level, works its way up. It's amazing. Once somebody's dead, they become a saint.
1: Absolutely true, and uh, we've all had this experience at the local level where uh, you're not expected to uh, bring unhappiness to the family. It's actually one of the reasons, I think, uh, why newspapers abandoned uh, the practice of uh, staff-written obituaries. Now, it is still done for people who are prominent in the news, but most obituaries – now, of course, actually the real reason was because it's a revenue stream now – most obituaries in the paper – are paid obituaries, so that actually removes the responsibility from the newsroom of truth-telling uh, about uh, the person who's died. So what if <laughs> a it's clever a lie? way to get around
2: it? You no, know, it's, a, it's a very good point, Rex. What happens if it's a lie? What happens if you say this guy's a saint, And it turns out, of course he's a total miscreant. Does the newspaper have any responsibility not to run that piece?
1: it's not the editor's responsibility at that point if it's a paid obituary it is uh, and this has happened occasionally where there's been something in a paid obituary that was not true, and the advertising director ends up being the person who has to deal with it. Uh, This is one of the perils that uh, you get into if you yield what has traditionally been perceived as an editorial responsibility and turn it into advertising. Mm. Um, But it's just an expectation people have had. Folks sometimes don't make a distinction between what is paid for in a newspaper and what is meant to be the truth-telling responsibility. They, they see it as all one thing.
2: Especially, especially, Rex, when newspapers obviously don't only run paid obituaries. They also obituaryize, I suppose that's not a word, uh, themselves, so that now people have to decide what's paid for and what's, what's honest journalism.
1: Obituary eyes. There you go. Okay, finally today, we ought to note that for local uh, listeners of uh, WAMC, the Times Union Center will not be called that shortly. The 15-year naming rights that the Times Union has had for the center is going to expire. The newspaper is not going to pay for that anymore. So, Alan, are you going to take it over for WAMC, maybe call it the Shartok Center?
2: Not on your life, period. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't you're have missing that. Missing a great opportunity. We, we do not have that kind of money. We're just a poor public radio station struggling to get by. And the idea that that kind of money can be spent it just shows you that all is not lost. Newspapers, I know, we cry about that a lot. That newspapers are dying and all the rest of it, but some of them can afford to put their name on a center like that and pay a lot of money for it.
1: All right, that's it. The media project is up for this week. Alan shartok Rosemary Mayo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project.
0: Finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized the union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now, newspaper men are such
4: The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigator. Investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast the Media Project anytime at wamc.org, or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening.
0: Never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries. For publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation Ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising Get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press